Well, join me in John 15. We are getting back to our study of the life and ministry of Christ, John chapter 15. We left off there a few uh, months back now, and we find ourselves in this passage that should be familiar to many of us. John chapter 15, it's that classic, very well-known passage about a vine and its branches, a vine and its branches. It's in verses 1 through 11. Let's get our bearings, though, before I read the text. Let's set the stage, remind ourselves of where we have been, where we are in Jesus' life as this chapter opens. You remember for the last two chapters, chapter 13 and 14, we have watched and listened to Jesus while he was in an upper room. That was the final night of his earthly life, Thursday night in Jerusalem, only hours before his betrayal. And in those two chapters, Jesus celebrated the final Passover meal with his apostles. He was explaining through the bread and the cup the significance of his coming death. He washed his apostles' feet, giving a living picture of the forgiveness he was about to purchase for them. And then in chapter 14, he comforted his apostles. You remember that. We only had 13 sermons in chapter 14. Sermons of comfort, Lord willing. The apostles are grieved because Jesus is going to leave and leave soon. And so in chapter 1, Jesus commands his apostles, in verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus commands his apostles, do not let your heart be troubled. Repeated at the end, verse 27, do not let your heart be troubled in between all the promises of comfort that Christ gives his people. That's where we've been. But now, as chapter 15 opens, we are no longer in the upper room. The setting changes. Notice the final words in, verse, in chapter 14. Get up, Jesus says, get up. Let us go from here. So Jesus now has left the safety and the security and even the secretness of that room. And he has begun to make that slow walk to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be most vulnerable. We move from Thursday night now to early Friday morning. And there's another change, not just geographically or with time, but you have another change in chapter 15, because we come to a chapter filled with warnings now and threats, threats that these apostles will experience between the time of Jesus' arrest and return. And in particular, in chapter 15, Jesus speaks about two specific threats. His apostles, we can extend this out, all believers of Christ, two specific threats we must be aware of. There's the threat of worldly persecution, and there's a threat of gospel deception. Worldly persecution and gospel deception. Drop down to verse 18, chapter 15, verse 18. Notice the warning 
If the world hates you, here's now the threat of persecution. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, if they persecuted me, which they did and are doing, they will also persecute you. Persecution's coming, men. Jesus is warning, be prepared, ready. But before he gets to that warning, there's another warning. It's a warning that we find in the first 11 verses here. Another threat that lays on the horizon for these men. And he starts here, I believe, because this is the more serious threat of the two. That is the threat of gospel deception, of being deceived into believing a different and damning gospel. Now take a step back. This has been and this will be the main concern throughout the New Testament. This is the more sinister threat that looms. The far more dangerous threat, far more dangerous than any persecution the world could rage against God's people. Think of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, I am afraid. This is the only thing Paul ever says he's afraid of. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of your devotion to Christ. That's Paul's fear. Be warned, he says. The threat of deception looms. You then come to Peter's concern. 2 Peter chapter 1, brethren, be all the more diligent. Keep your eyes open. Again, be warned. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. The gospel you believe. Why? Because there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies and, watch this, many, within the church, many will follow them. Deception's coming. Fast forward to the book of Jude, his letter. Same concern Same threat, same warning. Jude writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I want to write to you to rejoice in the gospel that we all believe. That's what I want to do in writing this letter. The problem is I can't. Why? Because I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly, hold fast, Defend, fight for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Again, the question's why? Why fight for this? Defend this? Why be warned? Because of verse 4 for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. So Peter says the false teachers are coming, Jude says the false teachers are here. These are those who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Beware of the false gospel. Beware of that threat. It's the more sinister threat. Why? Because persecution can only take someone's earthly life. But a false gospel steals an eternal soul. 
I think that's why Jesus begins where he does in chapter 15. And so he makes a contrast now. He makes a contrast in these first 11 verses. The contrast is between the true gospel, his gospel, the only gospel that saves against the false gospel that threatens the soul of every man. And Jesus is masterful here. He uses a simple story. For the most part, we all know this story. Simple story. It's a kind of parable. It's a memorable word picture to explain the most profound and saving truth. Let me read the story. I'm only going to read through verse 6. We won't even get through all of that this morning. Let's read it to set it in our minds. Begin in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And you can stop there. You can see the contrasts. They're evident. There's a true vine, repeated twice. Verse 1, I am the true vine. Verse 5, I am the vine. There's a true vine, which means there's a false vine. There are branches that abide in the vine. There are branches that are attached to the vine only superficially. There are branches that bear fruit. There are branches that are fruitless. There are branches that live. There's branches that are burned up and die. All of these are contrasts that illustrate the true gospel from the false gospel. So that's how we're going to work our way through this for the next few weeks. We're going to note, first of all, the false gospel warned, big heading, the false gospel warned, and then we'll note the true gospel pictured. The false gospel warned, the true gospel pictured. We'll begin with that first, the false gospel warned. Verse 1, Jesus begins his picture of his gospel where he must. He begins it with himself. I am the true vine. This is a picture of what everyone would have seen across Israel's landscape. They were known for the vineyards, terracing the hillsides. Grapevines, those would be woody plants producing shoots and branches. There would be bunches of grapes on them. It's a central staple of Israel's agriculture. The grapevine, the vineyard. But verse 1, Jesus says, he is not just any of these vines, no. He is the true vine, the real vine, 
the genuine vine. Again, this is Jesus contrasting himself with a false vine, an artificial one, a counterfeit vine that his apostles and us must be aware of. Let's take a step back. This is the seventh and last I am statement. The I am statement that John records Jesus saying in his gospel. You know that each of these I am statements have been significant in their own way. They're essential. In each of them, Jesus takes for himself the divine name of God. He is the I am, back from Exodus. He is the I am. And he couples then that name with something only God could be or God could do. So back in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I'm the only sustenance of eternal life. I can only, I'm the only one who can give you eternal life. Something only God can do and be. John A, I am the light of the world. Jesus connecting himself with the Shekinah glory of God. You can look back to chapter 14. We've seen this. Chapter 14, I am the way. I'm the only path that leads to God's house. John 10, I am the good shepherd. Here it's no different. This is a claim of exclusivity. All of those claims, exclusive, unique claims to Jesus and Jesus alone. Here it's no different. I'm the only and the exclusive vine that God the Father has planted in this world. Again, verse one at the end, my father, my father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener, he's the planter. Literally, Jesus says, I am the vine, the true one. I am the vine, I am the true one. Every other vine is a weed. Every other vine is useless to produce fruits. Nothing else will please the gardener. Now, I think you should be asking, why does Jesus choose vine imagery here? He could have chosen anything. Like, why a vine? Well, again, take a step back. Let's understand the setting further. Jesus, at the end of chapter 14, has left the upper room. He's heading to Gethsemane. And as he walks that path, he must pass the temple. The very temple where he would have seen a gigantic golden vine filled with clusters of grapes hanging from those beautiful gates. One dictionary describes the scene, just kind of picture this in your mind. In the temple at Jerusalem, above and round the gate, 70 cubits high, about 100 feet tall, which led from the porch to the holy place, a richly carved vine was extended as a border and decoration. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of finest gold. The stalks of the bunches of grapes were of the length of a human form. The bunches hanging upon them were of costly jewels. Where did those jewels come from? Well, Jews would actually bring their own jewelry. It'd be fashioned to that vine. The dictionary continues. Herod first placed it there. Rich and patriotic Jews from time to time added to its embellishment. 
One contributed a new grape, another a leaf, a third even a bunch of the same precious materials. It's an ever-growing vine. What majestic splendor must it likewise have appeared in the evening when it was illuminated by the tapers, those temple candles, coupled that with the full moon of Passover. This is what Jesus sees. He's walking that road to Gethsemane. He looks up to the temple and the vine imagery is there. But again, a why question. Why is this vine hanging over the temple? Why would the people add their own jewelry to it? Again, the answer, this is because this golden vine represented God's relationship with Israel. The vine was a symbol of God's life, his salvation flowing through Israel, symbolized his choice of them, his care of them, his salvation of them. That's a symbol. His life-giving sap is to them. We see this in the Old Testament, Psalm 80, speaking of the Exodus. The psalmist praises Yahweh, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Israel's God's grapevine. He chose Israel. He saved Israel, established it all by God. Think of Isaiah 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved. Here's a song for Yahweh concerning his vineyard. Again, that's Israel. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He took care of this vineyard, took care of Israel. He removed its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. Again, he cared for her. He's gracious. He built a tower in the middle of it. He guarded her, fought for her. Oh, that imagery of a vine, a vine dresser. Other passages could be added. That's the background. And so Jesus then sees this imagery in verse one. This vine is hanging throughout the temple. There's a constant reminder of Israel's divine calling, a representation of their significance, their history, their specialness. It's a picture of their relationship with God at what, and what that meant for the world. Right, to have a right relationship to God, you need to be a part of this vine. To have that relationship with Yahweh required you to attach yourself to Israel, God's people, those covenants. Israel offered the sacrifices, the worship. Salvation's from the Jews. And so Jesus then sees this vine hanging, all that it represents. He's about to cross the Kidron Valley and amazingly he stops. And he says, see that vine? See that beautiful, glittery, golden, beautiful vine? You know that's the picture of Israel. Well, understand it's actually a weed. It's a weed. And then he points to himself. Give me preacher's license. He points to himself and he says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. 
Christ is condemning what Israel had become at this point. You can't get to God through them. God is not accepting their worship. We saw this happen in the temple, right? He condemns the temple. He cleans it out. God rejects your worship here. I'm the vine. You can't get to God through them. And amazingly, Israel looked the part and they looked beautiful on the outside. Again, all golden and glittery. Think of the temple and its pageantry. But Israel was not the fruitful vine God had planted. No, Israel had actually become a decaying weed. It was bearing only poisonous fruit. Think back to Matthew 23. What Jesus said earlier in this week, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, judgment from God upon you. Why? Because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, one follower, disciple of yourself. And when you do that, when he becomes one, when you convert someone to your religion, to what that's become, when you graft them into that vine, Jesus says you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. It's poisonous fruit. It's a damning gospel. Israel is not the vine God had planted. And just how poisonous was this fruit? Just how dried up was this vine as Jesus is speaking, the religious leaders are meeting with Judas. And they are gathering their soldiers and they are readying themselves to arrest their Messiah and convict God's son of blasphemy and turn their king over to the Gentiles to be executed on a stake. That's how dried up this vine is, how poisonous the fruit is rotten to the core. Again, I am the true vine. You can imagine the hush that falls over the apostles. They know what Jesus is saying. The implications are staggering. Again, in the Old Testament, God's sap, his blessing, his life, his salvation came through Israel. Jesus now says, I, not Israel, I, and only I am the true vine. If you want to be cultivated by God in salvation, if you want to be nourished by God and fruitful for God and blessed by God, if you want to be guarded by God for eternity, if you want to be protected by God forever, then you must attach yourself to this vine, the better vine, God's only vine. That's me and only me. Again, finish verse 1. He's the only vine because his father is the vine dresser. His father is the divine caretaker who's cared for him. He's planted Jesus. He sent him from heaven to earth. Again, he's cared for this vine. He's guarded the vine. Think of the father protecting Jesus as a baby. Herod tries to kill him. He's protected the vine. Think of all of those statements Jesus has made. My hour has not yet come. The Father's been protecting me. This vine dresser, the farmer, he's nourished the vine. He's gave Christ his spirit. 
The farmer is pleased with the yield this better, genuine vine has produced. Perfect obedience, perfect submission, perfect worship, perfect righteousness. Everything Israel failed to produce for God, extend it out. Everything every sinner fails to produce for God. And Christ says, I've produced all of it in full to perfection. The Father's pleased with me. So that's the beginning of this word picture. This is how Jesus begins to contrast his gospel from every false gospel that will flood this world after he leaves. Let's put it this way. There's three warnings in this passage about the false gospel. Let's look at warning number one. How do you discern the true gospel from the false gospel? Warning number one, false gospels are Christless gospels. False gospels are Christless gospels. Every false gospel, no matter the name you put on it, every false gospel will try to attach itself to God and be blessed by God and connected to God and produce fruit for God by vines that are not Christ. And Jesus cannot be clearer at this point. He is the only vine through which God's salvation flows. Jesus has said this repeatedly up to this point. John 3 And the Father has sent the Son, and only in faith in the Son will you be blessed and saved. John 8, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I'm the only Savior. He's repeated this over and over again. It's no different here. I'm the only vine. Now, how applicable, how applicable is this statement for us today? Well, I would say... Very much so because caving on the exclusivity of Jesus not, is not only a threat, it is the threat for us today. The threat. Why? Because our culture derides absolutes, right? They hate absolutes. Our culture chafes at certainties. Our culture is utterly intolerant of any exclusive claim of truth. We know that, but if we're honest, we also know that we have a desire to be accepted and liked, don't we? Does anyone here like to be hated? Sign me up for that. We have that desire to be liked and accepted. And when you couple that culture with that desire, this threat becomes very, very real for us. And the temptation to stay quiet about Christ's exclusivity becomes strong. Let me add here a recent statistic. Because if these statistics are true, and just prepare, you're not going to believe me here. Prepare yourself. But if recent statistics are true, then 70% of professing Christians here in America, 70% have already succumbed to that threat. 70%. Probe Ministries, most recent statistic, 70% of professing Christians, and I understand they're not all believers. We get that, right? 70% of professing Christians between the ages of 18 and 55, they're the young Christians. 
70% disagree that Jesus is the only way to God. That is a shocking, shocking statistic. Let's put it in John 15 language. Only 30% of professing Christians believe that Jesus is the only true vine. That Jesus is the only one planted by God, sent to be Savior, through which God's salvation flows. Only 30% believe that. If you put into some historical context, that is an 18% increase since 2008. So in 2008, 52% disagreed that Jesus is the only way to God. Right now, we're at 70%, 13 years, 70% disagreeing with that statement. That's the trend. That's the trend where we're going. And notice, it's the 18-year-olds that are thrown in there. It's the young Christians. Where does that go? Who's teaching the families? Who's teaching the schools? Who's teaching in the churches? We're the minority. Believing this is the minority by far, not only in the world, but in the church. One religious cultural commentator put it this way, the question of Jesus as the only way to God is the defining question of our generation. So the defining question for the church today is not the debate between electric and gas cars, okay? Or probably any other debate that we engage in on Facebook. The defining debate here, the question, I'll quote another theologian, no other issue is so defining of the contemporary religious landscape. It's this, it's exclusivity. That's the issue. This is the issue we must be most concerned about today, most concerned about, most vocal about, care most about. It's that salvation is found in Christ alone. This is why Jesus starts here in John 15. Because he knows, he knows the temptation that awaits these men. Just put it in the context. He knows the temptation that awaits these men once they cross the Kidron Valley. He knows what they are about to see. They will see the unthinkable. They'll see it in horror. They will see the true vine, the true vine trampled down by the religious leaders. They will see the true vine cut by the Roman soldiers. And Jesus knows they are going to be tempted to doubt everything he has claimed about himself. They're going to be tempted to return to the poisonous fruits, the Christless gospel of first century Judaism. He knows that temptation is on the horizon. He prepares them for that. They needed to be strengthened in their faith here at his exclusivity. We too need to be strengthened in our faith at this point. And notice, they were, yes, they will flee, yes, there will be fear, but what do we see Peter proclaim in the beginning of Acts? We see him proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus, right? That's what he cared most about, most vocal. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. That's exclusivity. There is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given, no other vine that has been planted by God, no other Savior who has been sent among men by which we must be saved. And he says that to the people who killed Jesus. May we have that same boldness in our day. May we not cave under the pressures of our inclusive culture. May we hold fast to the only Savior and proclaim Him. False gospels are Christless gospels. Let's look at a second warning here. A second warning of the false gospel. Warning number two, false gospels are commitment-less gospels. False gospels are commitment-less gospels. So look at verse four, and here's the other contrast. Abide in me, there's the true gospel, abide in me. Notice the promise that Jesus gives to those who abide in him, those who are connected through faith to this vine. Christ promises, and I will abide in you. We're connected. I'll indwell you, I'll save you. The Father will prune you, he'll bless you. But now look at verse six, the contrast. The person who does not abide in me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. He's disposed of by the gardener. As a branch and dries up, this branch shows that it was never truly attached to the vine and they gather them, those branches, and cast them into the fire and are burned. That's a reference to eternal hell. You can't get more stark of a contrast than this. You can't get more serious of a warning. For those who abide in Christ, Christ abides in them. But for those who do not abide in Christ, they will experience eternity apart from him. Those are the two gospels contrasted. The gospel that leads to eternal blessing, the gospel that leads to eternal Punishment, it all comes down to whether or not someone is abiding in Jesus. And so you know the question we must ask, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does this mean? That's the contrast, what does this mean? And there's two answers. two answers. There's a general answer, a specific answer. The first answer, general, is that abiding in Christ is another way of talking about coming to Jesus in saving faith. It's a reference to saving faith. This is not some mystical joining of Jesus. This is saving faith. Resting on Christ alone, his perfect life, his sacrificial death for our salvation, for forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the Father. Now we know that because of John chapter 8. Jesus uses similar language. And Jesus says, he who eats my flesh, he rests only on my perfect life. He who drinks my blood, who relies only on my sacrificial death, that person has what? Eternal life. That's faith. Life. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. That's saving faith. Notice, he who has saving faith abides. Same word. He abides in me. To abide in Christ is to believe Jesus. This is faith, saving faith. 
and then carries with it the same promise, and I in him. You abide in me, I am in you. You have faith in me, I believe you. I accept you. So at its most basic level, to abide in Christ is to come to him in faith alone, to rest only in his perfect life, sacrificial death. You believe him. But this word also signifies something further. And this is what Jesus is driving home at this point, these early morning hours. Because abide not only describes faith in general, abide specifically defines the enduring nature of saving faith. The enduring nature. It's the word meno. It means to stay. It means to remain. It's the idea of a fixed state. Speaks of a continual and permanent, ongoing, enduring kind of faith. So Jesus wants no confusion at this moment, no confusion. Coming to him and saving faith is a lifelong commitment, not a temporary attachment. Saving faith is permanent, not fleeting. And if you've been here since we've been working through John's gospel, you understand this is an important theme in this book. Throughout this book, there's been a contrast between saving faith and superficial faith, genuine faith, temporary faith. It starts very early on in John chapter 2. We read this, John 2. Many believed in his name. There's some kind of faith there. And we might step back and rejoice. Look, people have come to Jesus and they're saved. But no, no, hold, hold that a bit. Because verse 24, but Jesus was not entrusting himself. It's the same word faith. They believed in him. He was not believing in them. He didn't believe their faith. Why? For he knew all men. That's early on in this gospel. Early on, you see that Jesus does not accept every kind of faith. We saw this in John 6. John 6, you know the, the story. The crowd is fed and they're full and they're happy. And so they want to crown Jesus as king. And what does Jesus do? He heads for the hills. He wants nothing to do with that kind of faith. He leaves them. Why? He knows it's temporary and fleeting. In John 8, same deal. John 8.30, notice this. Many came to believe in him. In fact, turn there. John chapter 8, just see the connection. And if you have a pencil, you can draw a circle and draw some arrows. That's always fun. Notice, verse 30, John 8.30. As he spoke these things, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Again, we want to rejoice. We want to say, yes, people have come to Christ in saving faith. But notice verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, circle believe in verse 30, draw the arrow to believe in verse 31. Same group. And what does he say? He says, if you, what's the next word? continue. You know your Greek. What word is that? 
Meno, abide, same word. You've believed, you have some kind of faith, but let me tell you, true saving faith abides, remains, continues in my word. That is when you can tell that you're truly my disciples. So the message throughout John has been, there's a faith accepted by Jesus, there's a faith rejected by Jesus. A faith that saves, a faith that damns. It's no different here. Turn back to John 15. Notice the temporary nature of faith of some of the branches and then the enduring nature of the others. Notice in verse two, notice this. The vine dresser, well, there's branches that are in me, Jesus says. Notice that. Every branch in me, they're somehow attached to him. They've made a profession of faith for him. And yet, continue the verse, the vine dresser takes those branches away, disposes of them. Verse six, they're thrown in the fire. Again, why? Because they did not abide in Christ. They did not cling and remain in him. Two kind of branches here. There's the superficial faith, the temporary believers, quote unquote, and then those who are true believers, those who abide, remain, endure. Saving faith is abiding faith. So let's put it in our outline then. False gospel is a commitmentless gospel. The true gospel calls for an enduring commitment while the false gospel calls for a temporary attachment. The true gospel calls for faithful obedience while the false gospel treats obedience as optional and secondary. The true gospel calls for a continual repentance and reverence while the false gospel makes no such demands. This is the difference between Christ's gospel that saves and an easy believism, commitment-less gospel that is so ubiquitous today. And you know the one, just give Jesus a try. See if you like him. It's a gospel that does not call for repentance. It's a gospel that does not call to deny yourself. It's a gospel that does not call for you to take up your cross and follow him. That is not the gospel. The true gospel is a call. Look at verse four, and this is a command. The true gospel is the gospel that calls us to abide, remain, persevere in Christ. That's a command. Persevere in the faith. Mark 13, Jesus said, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The one who endures will be saved. Why bring this up? Again, why bring this up on this night, this morning? Well, because Jesus knows who's about to come on the scene. Judas. He's the one who had attached himself to Jesus, certainly. He's the one who claimed to believe in Christ, definitely. When he did not get what he wanted, he abandoned Christ, the very opposite of abiding in him. 
His faith was temporary and fleeting. It did not endure to the end. Judas is the branch, the fleeting, the one that will be burned. The apostles, the others, are the fruitful. Notice again verse 6, that temporary branch, temporary faith, because it really has no life-giving attachment to Christ. There's attachment, no life-giving attachment. Verse 6, that branch is thrown away. And Jesus uses the same phrase used back in chapter 12 when he promises to throw away the ruler of this world. Well, here the same judgment applies to the commitmentless, temporary believer. He too, just like Satan, will be thrown away into the fire and burned. Again, a graphic symbol of God's eternal judgment. It's stark. The contrast is stark. And Jesus says, be warned, not all faith saves. Not all faith leads to the glories of heaven. There is a faith, there is an attachment to Jesus that actually opens the gates of hell. Leads into a third warning. I'm just gonna state it and we'll close in prayer. But the third warning that Jesus gives here of the false gospel, and it answers this question. We'll pick it up here next week. Answers this question. How do I know if I am abiding in Christ? How do I know that? How do I know if my faith is real? How do I know that I am actually connected to the life-giving vine of the true Savior? The warning is this. False gospels are fruitless gospels. Fruitless gospels. Notice verse two. Here's the difference. Every branch in me those who only are temporarily attached to me, that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser, God the Father, takes away, he disposes of them, contrast now, but every branch that bears fruit, he doesn't burn, he prunes it. He prunes it. Why? So that it may bear more fruit. So how do you know if you are truly abiding true faith in Christ? How do you know if heaven is indeed your home? The answer is that you bear fruit for the glory of your Savior. Right now, right now you're bearing fruit for the glory of your Savior. We're gonna pick it up there next week. Father, I pray indeed that we would take Jesus' words here and we would seek to apply those right now to our life. Bring conviction to us. Bring conviction and repentance where we have succumbed to this inclusive culture. Perhaps growing fearful, silent about our Savior. Pray that you grant us repentance. Turn, Lord, from a life that does not bear fruit for you so wrapped up, so wrapped up in the things of this world. Turn us from that. Let us have those eyes to see just how glorious and how important this gospel of Jesus is, that our calling is indeed to be ambassadors for him. Thank you that your Holy Spirit can instill these things into our hearts and cause us to change 
and live for you with a boldness and a love, not only for you, for others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.